Hello, and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from global perspectives on health, medicine, and accessibility to interviews with social justice activists, filmmakers, artists, and academics from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and humanities because life happens at the intersections. Hello, and welcome back to the Medical Humanities Podcast. I'm Brandy Skilache, your host and editor-in-chief of the Medical Humanities Journal for BMJ. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Cindy Weinstein. She, with co-author Bruce L. Miller, wrote a book called Finding the Right Words, a story of literature, grief, and the brain. This story is of an English professor studying neurology in order to understand and come to terms with her father's death from Alzheimer's. So Cindy, welcome. So glad to have you here today. Thank you, Brandy. It's really nice to be here. Could you uh, tell us a bit about yourself and how, you know, first of all, a little bit about who you are and where you're, where you're coming from and how you ended up co-authoring this book? Sure thing. My name is Cindy Weinstein. I'm an English professor at uh, the California Institute of Technology, which is where I've had my entire career. And my area of literary criticism is directed toward U.S. literature, primarily the 19th Mm -hmm. century. My father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in the 1980s when everything was Alzheimer's that involved forgetfulness. There, There weren't the sorts of distinctions that thankfully are being made today under the larger category of dementia. And I wanted to write a book to, as you said in the introduction, come to terms with the diagnosis and the fact that my father's first uh, clinical presentation, as it's called, was word finding, uh, and he couldn't find words. And this was what I uh, had an extraordinarily difficult time with because I was becoming an expert in language. I was getting my PhD in literature at Berkeley Mm -hmm. at the time that my father was losing words. And it was that synchronicity that I needed to work through in some way. Yeah, I can understand that. Words are how we think a lot of the time. And I don't think we realize how much. I actually, um, I had temporal lobe epilepsy seizures when I was in college and I used to get aphasia and dysgraphic disorder. And I remember thinking, I remember how I couldn't, I didn't know how to think without words. It was, it's very, very hard for us to understand Mm. how to function without words because we've, we've become a species so uh, dedicated to their use. That is so true. And one of the ironies, just to kind of fast forward a little bit, and then I want to get back to writing the book with uh, Bruce Miller at UCSF. But one of the ironies of writing the book is as much as I love language and finding the right words is a kind of love letter to words and novels and expression of how much I loved my father. Um, Language isn't necessarily all it's cracked up to be. Mm. There are other forms of communication that sort of people now working in the dementia space are thinking about. And um, that that gives me some comfort. I mean, words for me and for most of us, as you say, are really where it's at. But feeling and touching mm. and music and 
dogs and animals and there are all sorts of ways to make yeah yeah we just got one actually at the rescue um a couple days ago so we're in the middle of training him but um in any case i wanted to write this book there are a lot of really wonderful books about dementia and more specifically my father i learned from dr miller i'll call him bruce um my father actually didn't have Alzheimer's exactly. He had early onset Alzheimer's, which means 65 or younger, uh, early onset Alzheimer's with um, what's called the logopenic variant. And that is the word finding issue. Now, of mm. course, Bruce, we didn't have PETs or MRIs. I tried to get them, but the office in DC uh, didn't have them anymore. So Bruce, it's, it's a speculative diagnosis, but mm -hmm. it sure explained a lot. Mm -hmm. And because there are lots of books about Alzheimer's and dementia more broadly, I wanted to write a memoir that was not just my own story and my father's story. I honestly didn't know how resonant the story would be mm -hmm. of a Jewish New Jersey middle class girl goes to Berkeley for a PhD. I, I just didn't know if that would connect. And what was really important was I, you know, work at Caltech and not everybody thinks about the world through the lens of Moby Dick and the Scarlet Letter. And the, but I do, yeah, yeah, but I do. <laughs> always, always. Right, exactly. Um, but like science, you know, so I was like, um, this intuitive part of me thought, geez, you know, I've only gotten so far in dealing with my grief through the tools that I have to understand the world, which are the love of a daughter and literature, um, maybe science would help. And so I ended up applying to an interdisciplinary program called the Global Brain Health Institute, which is uh, in the neurology department at UCSF and also at Trinity College, there's a location. And Bruce and I worked on the book together. I learned enough neurology to set the table, as it were, uh, for Bruce to come in and reflect on the clinical presentations that I describe, whether mm -hmm. those are word finding, spatial disorientation, behavior, memory. So it's a kind of call and response back and forth between me and Bruce. And Bruce's expertise, not everyone has access to UCSF. A lot of people don't, whether it's UCSF or the Penn Memory Center or Mayo Clinic. And it mm -hmm. was really vital for me to try and give readers access to the best science out there. And, that, and that's Bruce. So mm -hmm. that's how the book came to be. That's that's really fascinating. I, I think for me, um, memory is such I, I'm hyperlexic. Uh, I'm autistic and hyperlexic. I have been accused of having a photographic memory. I, I don't there's not really any such thing in the way people talk about it, but I do have an excellent memory. And therefore, it, there's probably no nothing that frightens me more than the idea that I wouldn't be able to access those memories. Right. But then again, I mean, some of the things that you talk about and that I know Bruce Miller talks about is uh, we have a tendency to privilege memory in ways maybe it doesn't always deserve either. Um, right. We are not necessarily just our memories. Right. That is so true. Uh, 
you raise many interesting points here. I'm thinking about Anne Basting's work, Forget Memory. And she is, uh, I think, a MacArthur Fellow, and she's done this practice where she goes into senior centers and they put on plays and it doesn't matter if one thing follows from another. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. It's it's about the process and it's about the present tense. But like you, I am sort of deeply um, committed to my memory. Mm -hmm. And I should say, just in terms of the book, I had thought initially when I started that the book would begin with memory because um, my understanding was that Alzheimer's was only about memory, but that's not true. It's um, got many more components and many more uh, brain networks get assaulted by Alzheimer's. And so what I thought was going to be the first chapter, memory, ended up being the last chapter. Part of that was because that was the hardest chapter for Bruce to write. And also turns out that one of the things I discovered in the course of writing the book was that I hadn't forgotten memories of my father and the memories I'm talking about are memories of my healthy father, mm -hmm. but I had kind of stored them away really, really far away because it hurt too much to remember mm -hmm. him when he was healthy. And mm -hmm. so the process of writing the book strangely allowed me to remember all of the happy things because I had like 25 years with mm -hmm. my healthy father. And so the last chapter is a kind of, um, this is very grandiose, but I think you'll appreciate it, a kind of catalog of memories of my dad. Like mm -hmm. I was, I was thinking, I was thinking Whitman, I love Whitman, uh, and just sort of stream of consciousness and Getting back to the happy memories was, I think, really important. And one of the other things I discovered was this disease has a very strange mirroring effect. So, you know, one with Alzheimer's loses memory. I lost some memory of my dad. Um, some of the spatial disorientation that my father experienced, I was in Berkeley, but completely disoriented. And so this very strange mirroring effect started happening, which um, when I've spoken with other people with family members with dementia say that that is not all that unusual, especially, especially being unable to remember the good stuff because the diagnosis mm -hmm. is so difficult. Well, I, so I'm a, um, hey, I, I hesitate to say expert, though I'm, I'm sometimes called that. I, I study death and grief um, a great deal. My first book was about grief cross-culturally mm -hmm. and historically. And I ended up talking a lot about grief during COVID-19 right? Um, for the New York Times and other, play, you know, NPR, people wanting to say, you know, how do we deal with this now? What's happening now? Has grief changed? And one of the things that occurs to me is that when you are dealing with an illness like Alzheimer's, what you have is anticipatory grief for right. losses you haven't experienced yet. And so um, we don't, we're really bad with that. We, yeah. we don't know how to deal with anticipatory grief. It's not something we talk about. Even uh, the kind of, you know, stages of grieving are all for after the, the right. fact we don't talk about the in-between. And now you have 
you know, people suffering from long COVID or my, my best friend, Arabella Proffer, she's an artist. She has terminal cancer. The, dealing with knowing a thing is going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. We all behave as though we're walking around without the grief when in fact we're experiencing it Right. We experience it on both sides. And um, I'm, I'm reading uh, I, next year for the Peculiar Book Club, we're also doing Lauren Aguirre's um, The Memory Thief. Oh, right. Which is, mm-hmm. Yeah, which is about a damage to the hippocampus and a peculiar kind of amnesia. But um, th- the interesting thing, I was, I was as you were talking, I thought Alzheimer's is a memory thief, not necessarily for the Alzheimer's patient. Right. Uh, you raised so many good points here. Uh, I tried to be rational about my grief, which was, <laughs> I, 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 try, I try and tell myself it was the best I could do. I was, you know, 25. Mm-hmm. And, but, but when I say that, I, I, I mean like, okay, my dad in the days when you had a load film and a camera, he loved to take pictures. Uh, okay. Am I going to lose it when he can't do that? Like, mm-hmm. what am I going to do when he can't do this other thing that mm-hmm. I think? And so I try to sort of hide in my intellect and, and the, mm-hmm. you know, the compartmentalization. Again, it's how I got through my PhD. It was the best I could do. Um, but what ended up happening, and I say this in the book, is I kind of gave myself an anesthetic that took mm-hmm. a very, very long time to wear off. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I, what you're describing, the anticipatory grief, uh, I I just couldn't do it. And the duration, uh, and I think COVID-19 is is probably a really good analogy. It's the duration of, maybe it's all grief, I don't know. But my my dad, the the death just took forever. Um, and, Mm -hmm. And so I remember... At a certain point, I thought, okay, our life together is going to the nursing home. Like whenever I go to Florida to visit him, that's what we're going to do. Then when my brother called to tell me that dad was dying after over a decade, I it was like I was hearing it for the first time because mm-hmm. I, I forgot that he was dying. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. the strangest thing, Brandy. It was so weird. I have heard stories like this. I mean, the one thing that I I will say, and I'm not necessarily saying it to you, though I'm also saying it to you, but to our listeners, you you cannot do grief wrong. Uh, There's no right way, you know, so it's always about approaching it the way you can approach it in the moment at which it's happening. And so one of the things that you said earlier, which I think is really valuable and is, is a part of what you and Bruce do in the book, is talking about um, the power of the present, right. you know, it, the power of, of making something together, even if we can't make it stay, right. um, there, there's a, uh, I, I don't know how familiar you are with Sesame street, but when I was a child, very, very young child, uh-huh. again, I'm hyperlexic. I have a, I'm, I'm autistic. I have a, a really clingy memory, but there was a, a little cartoon that they did where a girl liked to draw pictures, but she didn't know where to put them to keep them safe. And in the oh. end, she decides to just let them go away because it doesn't matter. She made them. Wow. And I remember I was about mm-hmm. four years old and I was just completely like, wow, you know, it was mind blowing. And I still recall that because I think the act of being there in those mm-hmm. moments and making them is more important than the recording of them. And I think we've tended to forget that in our digital age where we record everything. 
Right. Right. I think um, one of the complexities can be when one is far away. And so that was Mm -hmm. my situation. Uh, My mother was the primary caregiver. I knew that there was no way on earth that either one of them would have wanted me to give up what Mm -hmm. I wanted to do. And so I didn't. And, you know, sort of living with that decision has been uh, a challenge. Mm -hmm. And what's been helpful uh, is to think about uh, moving, moving the feelings of guilt over to ones of regret, which is a little gentler, as Mm -hmm. well as what you're seeing, like, there's no right way to do it. No, no, there isn't. And and in fact, um, while dying is something we all do, death is for the living. Uh, death and, and dealing with it, that's something yeah. the living do. Right. And, you know, in a way, as your father's memories began to fail, you took on more and more of that same burden. Uh, yeah. So do you understand what I mean? It's like I you do. were taking on aspects of that before you lost him. And I, I to right. me, that is both the power, the grief the tragedy and the blessing of right. extended of, of extensive yeah. slow dying, I guess you might call it. Um, it's that's, awful and wonderful. Yeah, that's so true. In fact, in my first book, based on my dissertation, the um, epigraph was uh, to my mother and father whose memory is safe in mine. So mm-hmm. that really captures what you're describing, I think. Uh, so uh, the good news I th- is that readers seem to be responding to the book. I think for some people, it's a little too hard to read, especially my sections. Mm. Bruce's are um, just amazing in terms of explaining the science in a way that general readers, i.e. yours truly, can understand. And I, uh, what I also like about his contribution is that he uses my father's situation as kind of departure point, but then expands to talk about Mm. other kinds of dementia. His area of expertise is frontotemporal dementia, which is very behavioral in presentation. But there's also ALS, there's um, Jacob Critzfeld, um, there's, you know, all sorts of dementias. And Bruce explains many of them, Mm -hmm. as I said, using my father's illness as a departure point. I think, uh, too, just to, you know, here we are, we're at the Medical Humanities uh, Journal, and I do Medical Humanities more broadly. I'm also a writer. I write both nonfiction and fiction, and my degree of expertise was in 18th century literature and then later in Uh medical history. So I have Mm -hmm. a very sort of intersectional kind of look at these things. And you you say something which is absolutely true. We we do have an easier time reading the science. We're sort of like, okay, stem, 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 safe, safe. Right. But um but to be honest, it's because the the humanities the word human being in there, very important. The humanities uh-huh. speak to our soul. They do. Right. They, they cut us because uh, that's why I I you know I very rarely cry during a science documentary, but you know, I can you know, right, weep openly at at television that's, and movies and, and things like that. That's so interesting you say that because uh, one of the things I write about, I explain why I'm writing this book about my father with someone else who never knew my father except through my memories. And I and I write that, you know, when I'm talking about Edgar Allan Poe, like I'm not crying. 
Um, mm-hmm. But when I'm writing this other thing, I am. Although, you know, I should say that Moby Dick plays a really important role throughout uh, finding the right words because I spend a lot of time talking about identifying with various characters and mm-hmm. rage and and things like that. So Moby Dick is actually my favorite book. Yeah. Um, frequently when people ask me if like if I was on a desert island, what book would I bring? And I'm like, well, this one has a lot about whales. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah. it's a it's a really wonderful book. Every student I ever I used to be in academia. I'm not now I'm freelance uh, and I'm a, a public intellectual. But when I was, I teach Moby Dick and the students uh-huh. always hated it. <laughs> Oh, really? I was like, oh, but mostly because they they thought it was a book about a whale, and I had to always so explain it's it's not. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm actually teaching it right now, and uh, the students uh, they're Caltech students, so oftentimes they're going against the grain to begin with. Mm, but right. <laughs> many many of them are just giddy with reading it. It's so I interesting. It. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole the whole passage about uh, the castaway chapter. Sorry, I know we're getting Uh, off topic, but the castaway chapter just all of you listeners need to go find online the castaway chapter of Moby Dick and read about the subterranean coral insects who from the firmaments of waters lifted coral uh, colossal orbs. You need that. You need that section. Um, Beautiful. I love it. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Oh, and the book is great. And so uh, we're we're wrapping up now, but I yeah. have to say, I could talk to you for ages about this material. I think um, both memory, Alzheimer's, uh, grief, these are areas where the medical humanities really shine because it's a confluence of medicine, science, the humanities, history, social justice, access, healthcare. Right. So I, I'm really pleased. Um, and I'll just give the, the book's title again for anyone who might have missed it earlier. It is called Finding the Right Words. It's called Finding the Right Words. Cindy uh, and Bruce both coming together to talk about it from the humanities and from science. And I know all of you will really, really enjoy it. Uh, Cindy, is there anything you'd like to leave us with today? No, just many thanks and just loving the quoting from Moby Dick. And I could could talk to you for a long time as well, but this has just really been an honor. Thank you so much, Brandy. Thank you. And for all of you listeners, as I say at the end of every show, thank you for being part of the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Since 2020, transcripts are available for all shows on our blog. Stay in touch by reading the journal and blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We are also on Twitter as medhums underscore bmj.